How amazing is that, that the very one who spoke light into existence in the creation of the world is the same one who gives light to our hearts to see and understand the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. Pretty incredible passage, isn't it? Let us pray. We pray, Father God, that on this morning, as we sit under on this evening, as we sit under your word, may it wash over us, that we might experience it afresh and encounter your glorious Son clothed in his gospel. We pray, Father, for those who are here today whose hearts are still in darkness and who cannot see that your light might shine in their hearts, that they may see Christ. And for those who are in the light, that they might see your glory more clearly in the face of Christ on this day. Help us, Lord, to cast aside our worries and the burdens of this world. Help us to focus that we might grow in our knowledge of you and our love for your Son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, and I am a youth pastor here at Subi Church. It's a great joy and privilege to be up here this morning. I keep saying this morning. It's a Saturday. I'm not used to coming to the Saturday night up here today to share God's word with you. In the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, the first book is called The Magician's Nephew, which is the beginning book. And it is about a man, there's a wicked man in it called Uncle Andrew. He is the uncle of, of one of the children, Diggory, who has a friend, a girl named Polly. And he tricks them into touching these magic rings. He tricks Polly into touching one which casts her into another world. And then he kind of blackmails his nephew, Diggory, into going in there to rescue her. And so they enter into another world. It's actually a place sort of between the worlds. It's called the woods between the worlds. I think there's a picture of it. It's something like this where there's all these ponds. So they come out of a pool. And then if they jump into another pool, it takes them into another world. Now they enter into one of these worlds and they find the witch, the mother of death, so to speak. And she's killed everything in her own land. And so she wants to come back with them to their world so that she can kill everything there as well. And and that's what she manages to do. Now, to cut a long story short, they all end up in this world between the woods. The uncle, the wicked uncle, the kids, the wicked witch, and then another man who's a a cabbie. He's got a horse and a cart. He ends up there as well with his horse, Strawberry. And they end up falling into one of these ponds which takes them into a world of complete darkness, a world formless and without void. And while they are in there, they hear singing, they hear a song, and it's pitch black, and then all of a sudden light comes into the world, and creation comes into the world. And as they watch more closely, it is Aslan who comes up, the lion, who is singing, and he's singing this beautiful song, and creation comes into existence. But they have very different responses to Aslan and what they see and experience. The experience of the kids is delight, they love it, and they are drawn towards Aslan as well as the cabbie. But Uncle Andrew's experience of Aslan is quite different. It says of his experience, we must now go back a bit to explain that the whole, what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and the children. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. When the lion had first begun singing long ago when it was still dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things that he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, 
only roaring as any lion in a zoo might do in his own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order, he thought. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast responded in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, hayings and howlings. And when they laughed, well, you can imagine, that was worse for Uncle Andrew than anything that had happened yet. And for those who embraced Aslan, the children and the cabbie, Uncle Andrew said what selfish people that they are. If they want to throw away their own lives for this lion, that's their business. But what about me? They don't seem to think of that. Nobody thinks of me. You see, though the light was right in front of him, his heart was dark, and so he was unable to receive it. He was unable to see the true identity of Aslan. He knew enough about what he was seeing to know that he didn't want it, and so it is with humans and God. Romans says the natural person knows enough about God to know that they don't want him, and from God's perspective, that person is blind. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, says Romans. The big question that I want us to consider today is when Christ is lifted up, as he should be every week, and as we will do today, what do you see? We will fill that in as we work through the text. But I do want us to seriously think on it tonight. Because all of us come here in our life circumstances weighing on us, our jobs and our health and our families and things like that. Some of you have had a tough week, a terrible year or even a hard day today. And some of you feel great today, feel fresh. But some of you probably are here and don't want to speak to anyone. You might even be thinking, what am I doing here? But let the Lord's word wash over you today that it might bless you, that you might see something, that your heart just for a moment might rejoice and be glad. That the God of heaven and earth might give you eyes to see his glory in the face of his son. I will now ask you all to stand for the reading of the word of God. Our reading today will be from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this to Peter, about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with his holy angels. You may be seated. Now, this miracle in this passage has to be one of the most interesting miracles in the Gospels, certainly one of the most puzzling at first glance. You might even ask, with all the miracles that Jesus performs, why would Mark record this in his gospel, the only gospel that it's recorded in? Why would he include this kind of miracle, a staggered miracle, like a half miracle? What is it? Does Jesus need a second attempt? I think we have to deal with that question, don't we? In Mark's gospel, up until this point, Mark chapter 8, Jesus has already demonstrated his power and his authority over sickness and death and creation and demons, and he's raised a dead girl. He's demonstrated well and truly who he is and what he is capable of. There is no miracle too big for Christ's power and authority, and they have been on full display. And then all of a sudden we get this half miracle, a miracle in part, almost as if Jesus needs a second attempt. But he doesn't. He doesn't need a second attempt. When he heals the paralytic, he doesn't say, oh, do you have some feeling? Do you have some movement? When he calms the storm, it doesn't go from 10-foot waves to 5-foot. It goes to still. I'm going to suggest now that what is in view in this text is that the miracle functions as an illustration for what people are able to see about Jesus' identity. You see, in the book of Mark, the Pharisees and religious leaders have come into view and it's clear that they are completely blind. They are just like Uncle Andrew in the Narnia story who is shut off to the true identity of Aslan. And so the religious leaders are shut off to the true identity of Christ. They are completely blind. And then the immediate context shifts to the disciples. What can the disciples see? There is a conversation just before this passage that demonstrates that it's not only the religious leaders who can't see, but it's also Jesus' own disciples. And so Jesus confronts them. He rebukes them. He says, do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And so what bookends this discussion about what the disciples can see and hear is a healing of a deaf mute man and a blind man. There's a deaf man who can speak in part, and Jesus heals him. And now, in our passage today, there is a blind man who can see in part and then can see clearly. And the question still is there that is begged of us from the text, what can you see? You see, this miracle is a real-life historic, historical illustration. It shows us to what extent the disciples can see the true identity of Jesus. And we know this because the very next part of the text that we read, you see Peter sees in part but not in full. 
Who am I? Jesus says, he says, you're the Messiah. Yeah, and the Messiah must suffer. No, no, he mustn't. You see, Peter only sees in part. Let us skim through the miracle because we have much to get through. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? You see, his friends and family begged Jesus to touch him. They've most likely heard that people only have to touch his cloak and they can be healed. So that's all they want. But Jesus takes the man by the hand and leads him away. So Jesus' first touch doesn't heal the man. Jesus is leading him away. That's the way that you would lead a blind person, isn't it? To take them by the hand and lead them. I think this demonstrates somewhat of Jesus' compassion, his love, his tenderness, his care, his ability to relate to us, to meet us where we're at. In the healing of the deaf mute man, when Jesus takes him aside, he puts his fingers in his ears. He said, I know what's wrong with you. You're deaf. And because of that, and then he touches his lips. He says, you can't speak. And Jesus looks up to heaven and says, be opened. And the man can speak. And now he takes the blind man by the hand and he spits and touches his eyes. And he asks the question, what can you see? Do you see anything? I think this is really interesting. In some sense, the question is the interesting part of the miracle. Why does Jesus even ask the question unless he knows that the man is not healed in full? It implies that Jesus knew all along that he had not fully healed him. And the man responds and he says, I see people and they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't ask him again the second time because just as with the first time, He knows exactly to what extent the man can see. So who took this man from blindness to seeing in part and then seeing in full? It was Christ. Who else is blind in the context or certainly struggles to see? It's the disciples. The implication is that we too were once blind. And so we sing the hymn of amazing grace. I once was lost and now I'm found was blind. But now I see. Who takes us from blindness to sight? Is it us? No, it is God. Remember, we read in the passage that we heard from Wendy, for it is God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to quickly draw one more illustration from this miracle. I would like to use this miracle as a way of thinking about salvation for Christians. The emotion that a new Christian feels when they become a Christian if they are older, so if you haven't grown up a Christian and then you become a Christian, is almost the same sort of intensity as the experience as the blind man receiving sight as an older man. But if you grow up in a Christian family, it is more like a prolonged experience of your vision becoming clearer. But don't be discouraged if that is your experience, just because it isn't as drastic as someone who goes from blindness to sight in a moment. It is a blessing to gradually see clearly who Jesus is and what that means for your life. All right, we get to the second part, which is the pattern of the gospel. I want us to think about this now as we come to this part of the text. Verse 27 says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? What is the word on the street, he says. They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks. Who do you say that I am? In other words, what do you see? 
Do you have ears and fail to hear and eyes and fail to see? Who do you say that I am? What do you see? Is what Jesus is asking them. And Peter's response is profound. He says, you are the Messiah. It is right. And in Matthew's account of this conversation, Jesus responds and says, Blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But we have already looked at that and heard that. Now, it is not merely, it is not only because Peter wears his heart on his sleeve that he is the first to answer, but Peter's response is most likely representative of the other disciples. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. But why does Jesus do that? Isn't it interesting? He does that quite a lot. Why does Jesus tell people to keep quiet? There's a few ways to think through that, but just very quickly so we don't move past it. Jesus doesn't go around and shout out, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. No, Jesus wants them to come to a conclusion based on his teaching and his works, not merely because he claims it. Plus, if he shouted it from the rooftops, they would kill him. Jesus does not make his identity explicit until he is ready to lay down his life. And he does do that. He does do that. At the end of the epistle of Mark, when the Pharisees and Sadducees have him cornered and they've put, they've put him on trial and everything's not working out for them and they need one last attempt to, cap, to capture Jesus, to find him guilty, they say to him, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus says, I am, absolutely. And you will see the Son of Man Sending on the clouds of sending on the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And they, they tear their clothes and go, That's it, thank you. Kill him. Jesus does make his identity explicit, but when he's ready to lay down his life, nobody takes his life from him, he lays it down. But at this moment in this text, Jesus is not laying down his life. He is teaching his disciples and helping them to see. And so now is not the time for them to go and publicize his messianic identity. And you see, the pattern of the gospel will be the pattern for their life. And that's what we're going to think about now. He then began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Now pay attention to the word must, right? The Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be crucified. We could spend a few weeks considering why Christ must suffer. We could spend a long time. But I'll give you just four. Jesus Christ must suffer to be our substitute so that he can take our place, so that he can die the death that we deserve to die. So he must suffer because of that. He must suffer and die to conquer the power of Satan that Satan has over us. If you remember from Pastor Dave's sermon last week, Satan has a legitimate claim to this world. And he has a legitimate claim, I think, to you and I because we're sinful. He says, see all these sinful, wretched, pathetic people they belong to me. They're under sin. The wages of sin is death. They can't be in relationship with you. And Jesus needs to claim people for himself. And so he must die and suffer if he's going to do that. If he's going to bind up the strong man and plunder his good, he must go to the cross. He had to suffer and die so that he can empathize with our weakness, so that he can be our good shepherd and our faithful high priest. And finally, he must suffer and die because God had planned it. He had ordained it and decreed it before the foundation of the world. Acts 2 said, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you crucified him. It's a great paradox, isn't it? You're guilty, you killed him. But it happened according to God's sovereignty, his decree, his plan, his will. God has decreed it and testified to it in his scriptures, and God's word will not be broken. 
And so he must suffer. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This sounds incredibly strong, this language, get behind me, Satan. Jesus would say that to Peter, who loves him, who just professed his messianic ship. He said, you're the Messiah. I love you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Man, that would have cut like a knife, don't you think? Peter would have been devastated to hear those words. Why does Jesus say it? I want us to think back to last week, if you were here, to Pastor David's sermon when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Satan was tempting Jesus with the world, remember? He says, you can have it all and you don't have to go to the cross. Satan's happy for Christ to be a Messiah, just not a Messiah that goes to the cross. And we had that picture of, instead of Pilate's men putting a crown of thorns on his head, they would crown him king of the world. He said, you can all have this, just bow down to me. And so the temptation that was presented to Christ by Satan was that he could be king without the cross. You see, Satan is happy for Christ to be the Messiah that is in Peter's mind, isn't he? A Messiah that does not suffer, but Jesus says, I must suffer. The Messiah that Peter wants Jesus to be is the same Messiah that Satan wants Jesus to be. The purpose that Peter has for Christ is the same purpose that Satan has for him, to be a king without a cross. Jesus' rebuke is not harsh in that way then. He is saying, I have already faced this temptation, Peter. And now it comes from you. I've already done this in the wilderness. I've been here before. Tempted with a kingship without a cross. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you don't have in mind the concerns of, you you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of Satan. He doesn't say that. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of humanity, of man, of mankind. And that is because fallen man has the same purposes as Satan. They're of the same cloth. They have the same desire for lust and pursuits of power and comfort and success and influence. They are fundamentally self-seeking. You see, people are only of two families. You're either of the family of God and are saved in Christ, or you are of the family of the devil. You are not free. People think, I don't want God because he's going to bind up my life with his rules and regulations. And they think they are free, but they are not. They're just slaves to their pursuits of sin. That's all they are. They run after these meaningless things, just like a greyhound chasing a rabbit with complete focus. But for those who see Christ, for those who have seen the light, They know that that is just a foolish game. It is just a meaningless pursuit. And so what is revealed in this text is the spiritual condition of the disciples. They see a Messiah, but not a suffering, crucified Messiah. But that is what they must see, and eventually they do. But what do you see? Now, I want you to see Christ as the Messiah, and that as the Messiah he must suffer. So that's obvious, I think, from the text, that you must see him as the Messiah and as a suffering Messiah. And the way in which God has ordained Christ 
that Christ would suffer unto glory, that he would suffer and then be glorified. In this, he not only reveals Jesus' identity as king, this idea of that Christ must suffer and then be glorified and then rise and be glorified, but this sets the pattern for the kingdom. As it is for the king, so it is for his people. In Mark 10, Jesus says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we will now see in the next part of the text that the same pattern of self-giving sacrificial love that led Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory is the very same call over our lives as those who see him and follow him, suffering unto glory. I must suffer and then be glorified, and you must suffer and into glory, is what Jesus will say. And so the last part of the text, the pattern for your life if you follow Christ. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anybody give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So we have an application provided by Jesus, don't we? You must take up your cross and deny yourself. This isn't faith, right? This isn't dealing with what must I do to inherit eternal life, believe. This is what it looks like to live a life of faith. This is the distinctiveness, the trademark, the litmus test of living faith. This is faith in action. That once you see Christ and follow him, there is a new self that rises up that must deny the old self. Two natures, so to speak. One that denies and one that is denied. One that denies and one that is denied. One self, the old self, the natural man, the natural woman, is self-seeking. Its focus is on its own comfort and honor and power and achievements. Its aim is to maximize all that this world can give it. It is the kind of self that would have leapt at the temptations of Satan to be king. It is happy with the Messiah. I would even say one who dies if it's, re- if it's merely to receive a ticket into heaven. But this self is repulsed by the idea that it too must suffer and give up its own concerns. And that is why Jesus will say, what good is it for a person to gain the world and forfeit their soul? This is the blind self. Why would you let the blind lead you? The other self, the new self, that sees Jesus, experiences him in his gospel. It sees him as more valuable than life itself. It wakes up in the morning and it crucifies the old self and says that first of all, I will set my mind on the concerns of God. You see, the old self, the blind man, has in mind the concerns of men. That's the problem with Peter, isn't it? You have in mind the concerns of humanity. The new self doesn't have those concerns in mind. They're concerned with the things of God. The new self sets its mind on the concerns of God. And so just as Jesus was willing to suffer for others, so it too is willing to give up earthly comfort and wealth and pleasures and even bear shame for the sake of Christ. The question is, are you willing? This is a challenge, even to my heart, to wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to seek first the concerns of God. 
I'm going to seek first to put myself into situations where I might bear shame, where I might suffer, where I might not be comfortable, where it might be hard on my family financially, where whatever. I'm going to seek first the concerns of God. It seeks to serve and not be served. The new self identifies with others for the sake of their salvation. Paul can say to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that all by all possible means I might save some. Isn't that amazing? This idea that the call over the Christian life is to suffer unto glory. And Christ came down from heaven. He did not need to, to identify with those who are weaker than himself for the sake of their salvation. And that is what he says you must do. So we come to church not to be served, but to serve. I want to have fellowship with other Christians that I might encourage them in their faith that I might serve them for the sake of their salvation, that I might identify with others that some might be saved, that we might strengthen one another. See, it's not self-seeking. The old self is self-seeking. The new self is not. And that's a challenge to me as well. It's a challenge to all of us. The one who sees and follows Christ does this because Jesus sets the pattern, suffering unto glory. That's the pattern for all who will follow him. Do you see it? Do you see the pattern? It is not to say that you don't pursue a career or a good education or enjoy comforts. Absolutely, you can. These are good gifts from God. It would be legalism to tell you that, that those things are bad. But they are not front and centre for the new self. If they are, then we need to check our hearts. Servitude, love and self-sacrifice rise up with the new self. They rise up with the new self. And if they aren't there, then you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Honest to God. And that's to all of us. Jesus says, on account of me and the gospel, anyone who loses their life on account of me and the gospel, and that is because the gospel sets the pattern. You see, we see Christ clothed in his gospel. I will say this until the day that I die. The Christian life is never, ever about moving on from the gospel. You will never plummet its depths. It is a well that will never run dry. It is rich enough. It is deep enough. The experience of seeing Christ is so great that even the blind man who receives sight and goes home and sees his family's face for the very first time pales into insignificance in light of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. And if you have seen him, you will not turn back at the word that you must daily deny your natural self, your natural man or woman. You will not be repulsed by that if you've seen him. Because he's worth that. And the very same temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness, when Satan offers him the world, we too must face. Because Jesus says, what good is it to gain the world and forfeit your soul? You have to choose, you have to make that decision as well, don't you? To deny the world. Jesus is saying, you must suffer unto glory, just as I have. That's the pattern for your life. Paul says, I consider all things as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. When you move from blindness to sight, then the glory of God in the face of Christ is worth more than any other thing. Don't think that at the end of your life that you can buy your life back. Don't think that you can buy your soul with possessions on earth. Even if you had all of the treasures on earth, you could not buy your soul. There's only one thing that can buy your soul, and that is the blood of Christ. And many will reject him and trample him underfoot. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible that they would do that. 
but it's because they're blind. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They cannot see it. And they might have momentary pleasure, but then they'll be lost forever. You see, only one self will survive. Isn't that the point? Who is free, brothers and sisters? The one who trusts in Christ, who hands over their life to him. Now, I'll close with these words from 1 Peter. Because God says it better than I, and I want us to see a little bit of this pattern of the Christian life. And I think Peter captures it the most clearly. I'll read it out. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted what the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, you do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil human desires, see? No longer with the concerns of man, but rather for the will of God, for the concerns of God. That's the new self. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. There it is. There's the pattern. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed there, those who are ashamed of me. But praise God that you bear that name. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, you are an incredibly good and kind and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son. We thank you, Christ, for your willingness to come down to identify with us, though we are weak, that you might save us. We pray, Lord, that you give us the same mind that is of Christ Jesus, that we might see our lives as in your service, Lord, that we might put first your concerns, that we might give up the concerns of our old self and put on Christ. Help us every day to think about this, to be led by the gospel to see the pattern of the Christian life displayed fully in your Son. Please give us strength through your Spirit to walk in the way that brings you honour and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.